0: We know that 50 to 70% of people who attempt suicide talk about their thoughts, feelings, and plans before they act. This is tremendous hope. and This is hope that we can build on.
1: Welcome to the one in five of us changing the mental health landscape podcast. We are working to stop the stigma and start the conversation about mental health. One in five people will experience a mental health condition, but it takes on average eight to 10 years for someone to seek treatment.
2: Hi, I'm Nancy Igle-Miller, the founder and executive director of One in Five, and I'm thrilled to host this podcast to help educate our community around mental health and wellness and to empower you to start the conversation.
1: And I'm Kayla Wood, the social media specialist at One in Five. Together, we can stop the stigma and start the conversation. You belong here. We belong Today we're talking with Stacy Hoffman, LPCC and Program Manager for Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center's Adapting for Life Program. So Stacy, tell us a little bit about your current position. Hello, my name is Stacy
0: Hoffman. I am a Program Manager
1: for um, the
0: Adapting for Life Program at Cincinnati Children's. Um, I have been working at Cincinnati Children's for about 10 years. Um, Prior to working in uh, the adapting for life program, my role was in the emergency room. Uh, I was a clinical counselor in the emergency room and my job was to do psychiatric evaluations with kiddos who were coming to the emergency room for concerns of suicidality, other um, out, of, out of control behaviors, aggressive behaviors, and ultimately, it was my role with the physician and the family to make decisions about the plan of care, uh, ultimately recognizing that we want to keep kids and, and everyone as safe as possible. I loved working in the emergency room, uh, truly felt like it was uh, such a privilege to be a part of people's lives when they are at such a raw and vulnerable place. Um, really felt honored and and grateful but after doing it for eight years I couldn't help but think you know what more can I do uh, to help kids and really wanting to get in front of the experience that was bringing kids into the emergency room into that place of crisis so uh, at that point I learned about what was then called the surviving the teens program Cincinnati Children's and that program had been um, up and running for almost 20 years. Uh, a woman named Kathy Strunk, who was uh, a nurse, started that program and truly was a pioneer. Uh, at this time, people really weren't going into the natural environment of school to help teach kids these important lessons. So um, I was extremely excited about the program, and, and really my timing couldn't have been more perfect. Um, at that point, uh, one in five had been a supporter of, um, of surviving the teens, but they had just connected us with Tier 1 Performance Solutions, um, who were going to redesign the program to make it even more engaging for students. Uh, the previous program had been uh, more of a lecture style, and we were really interested in making it something fun and engaging. Um, and meaningful to students in a way that they were a little bit more able to absorb it, if you will. So right at that time when all of that was happening, uh, and Kathy Strong had made the decision to uh, retire from the program. And that was when I was able to move into the program manager position. And it's tripled since that time, our reach in the program has, has tripled uh, in the past three years. Um, and We continue to have the opportunities to uh, work throughout the greater Cincinnati area, including the tri state area, and ultimately um, are somewhere around 70 schools that we're able to go in and provide this uh, suicide prevention education program to students. So I've been extremely grateful to be a part of this, recognizing what's happening in our culture and uh, the fact that. Uh, suicide is a leading cause of death for kids ages 10 to 14. It's the second leading cause of death for people ages 15 through 34. And fortunately, kids are being faced with these problems and these challenges, but we, we're not giving them enough of a tool belt of what they need in order to address these challenges and to support themselves and their friends as they move through these various challenges in life. We're very grateful to have the support of One in Five and Tier One Performance Solutions. Um, really, together, we've been able to um, make this program really take this program to the next level. Um, Tier One has a tremendous uh, ability to really meet students where they are and to um, help walk them through um, a program in a really engaging and inspiring way.
2: Stacy, tell us more about um, the Adapting for Life program. What what does it look like on a daily basis? So,
0: Adapting for Life includes a variety of teaching methods to help keep students engaged. It's an experiential four-day instructor-led workshop that includes videos, videos of Cincinnatians, um, real Cincinnatians who have had their own experiences with mental health or have a loved one with experiences with mental health. Uh, it includes mindfulness exercises, group activities, uh, moments of reflection, uh, technology, and we also have a workbook. Every student who participates in the Adapting for Life program is provided with what we call an experience journal, And the Experience Journal, really, um, it reflects uh, the program in terms of um, our um, ADAPT framework, um, which uh, is a method for getting help for kids or themselves. Um, A is asking questions to gain awareness. D is describing feelings and behaviors. A is assessing obstacles and warning signs. P is planning to take action when it matters the most. And T is talking to a trusted adult. So the Experience Journal uh, reflects details of the ADAPT framework, but it also provides kids with a place where they can write their own thoughts, feelings, reactions to the content that we're discussing through the experiences that we're providing in the classroom. We're happy that the students are given the Experience Journal. It's a a very dynamic, colorful, um, engaging uh, resource that we, um, we provide every child. Even if kids are feeling as though uh, the Experience Journal or the program, uh, the curriculum doesn't have something to offer them at this very moment when we are presenting in their classroom, that it's something that they can take home and provides them with skills and resources that they can always have, they can always turn back to uh, at a later point in their life.
2: So uh, what drove you to select therapy out of all the other positions that were out there?
0: So, you know, it's funny, I actually really took a backdoor to the field of psychology. Um, I am, um, I've always been someone who's very an extrovert. Uh, I'm very engaging with other people. I get a lot of energy from other people. I've always been interested in what makes people tick and what makes them um, act in certain ways. Um, how our personalities, our talents, and our skills and strengths and weaknesses all sort of come to fruition in our relationships. But I've also also been an, an avid lover of art. And um, I, I when I was talking about my career choice and I was trying to make some decisions, um, someone had suggested to me graphic design. And I worked in a graphic design studio for a little while, and I said, this is not what art is to me. Art is more about expression. It's more about self-knowledge and awareness. Um, it, it can communicate uh, in a lot of ways that words can't even communicate. So um, because of my love for art, I, that's when I said, I, I really want to continue to use art as a way to uh, explain, expand wellness and for people to have opportunities to grow and learn about themselves. Um, so that was actually what brought me into the field of psychology psychiatry is, is the, um, uh, my, my love of art and uh, especially when talking about kids, it's such a natural uh, means of communication. Uh, and again, it doesn't require all of the verbal skills that um, talking does. So um, it, really was, it really was art that brought me into the field. So I did start off as an art therapist. I um, initially got my master's degree in clinical art therapy um, and uh, really loved that. But it didn't take me too long to realize that in terms of third party payments and in terms of licensure, uh, I really needed to um, expand my skill set and ultimately um, got my um, master's degree in clinical counseling. So initially when I started off, I was, did a lot of outpatient therapy, I did some home-based therapy, and I definitely used some art um, in, in, those, in those sessions. And although it's not something I'm quite as close to right now, uh, it definitely is something that um, I, I fall back on and I definitely um, am a believer in. And we do um, work to have some of those components
1: in the program as well. Uh, as a modality. What motivates you to continue pushing forward with this work? What motivates me to
0: continue in the field is those moments of connection. Um, I can't take away someone's pain, but I can assist them in reducing that pain. Um, being in the classroom and seeing how kids typically greet you on day one uh, with their guards up uh, and then, as they get to know you as a person, and they um, they hear your perspective, they all of that goes away. All of that begins to uh, melt, and we're able to learn to 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 connect to help. Um, I, I firmly believe that we all have different personalities, skills, and talents, and that we all have sort of a niche, and. Um, I definitely have found my niche in talking um, with people about mental health and fitness and wellness. I feel like I I can sit and talk to a child about a trauma or abuse that they've experienced in any way that they're possible and make them feel better um, from having that conversation. It's those moments, it's those, those moments of connection, it's the humanness in those situations that inspires me further. Clearly, it's very important that I take care of myself. I firmly believe that I can't put on another person's oxygen mask before I put on my own. So uh, doing things in my life, uh, connecting with friends and family, um, doing my own art, um, exercising, being in the outdoors, doing my own mindfulness work recognizing when I'm having a bad day. All of those things are critical to my ability to, to stay in the field, to sustain the work that I do in the field.
2: We're so incredibly lucky to have you. I mean, your connection with kids is obvious. Your energy, you can tell that you get your energy from them, which is a beautiful, wonderful thing, because I think that um, a lot of adolescents feel very um, isolated, Um, the research shows that they feel isolated. So to have other adults come into their life and to feel that compassion for them and to meet them where they are on the subject matter, I think is just so critical. So thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. I mean, it helps that I do have my own teenagers, uh, right now and, um, and they have lots of friends, and it's a huge priority to me to be able to connect with them and um, have them feel that I am an adult in their life that they can talk to and that they can go to even when they don't know how to say what they want to say. Um, so that, that's um, definitely something that's very important to me.
2: So um, what, is, what would be your version of the ideal health supports um, in schools when it comes to mental health education?
0: An ideal mental health support system at a school would include, uh, would realize that wellness includes physical, emotional, social, and academic domains. Each are important, and they're all intertwined with each other. Uh, Well-being is a wholeness. It's a completeness. Um, And an ideal mental health uh, support at school would reflect this complexity. So I think that if we're talking about what's ideal in a school situation, it would be something that addresses every population of the school. So it would be support for administrators, teachers, parents, students. Um, I think that um, the curriculum would be from grades kindergarten through 12. Programs would um, help identify and support students um, by building coping, problem-solving, and cognitive skills. It teaches them what they can do to help themselves or a friend in crisis. Um, These are skills that we can start teaching our kids from a very young age. I think the sooner that we can uh, get in and um, try to help kids have this um, foundation, to understand and manage their emotions, to set and achieve positive goals, uh, to feel and show empathy for others, to establish and maintain positive relationships and how to make positive decisions, right? Uh, It would help kids understand that it's normal to not feel normal and that they're not alone. Curriculum would highlight that stigma is real and reduces people's willingness to get help. Successful programming would help students define a plan for times of crisis, including things in our environment that bring us strength or calm or support. Identifying go to people in our lives, adults, friends that we can trust. When we're feeling, we know that it's very hard to do these things when we're feeling hopeless. So, providing kids with the opportunity to do these things ahead of time can be life saving.
1: So, can you talk a little bit about one in five's role in the community? One in five has done a tremendous job of breaking down
0: barriers in the community and and spreading uh messaging uh, regarding mental wellness in our community it has provided us with not only financial support for our program but it's also become sort of a hub in our community where schools and professionals can go to be connected with programming um, other supports that they need and supports uh, training and education from kindergarten through 12th grade uh, and looks at where, where are the barriers, where are the obstacles, how can we break through those, how can we continue to spread the word. It's okay to talk about your mental wellness. It's okay to need help.
1: We're also talking with Terry Thomas, the health and PE teacher at Marymount High School. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your position and what you do?
3: Okay, well, I'm Terry Thomas. I have taught at Marymount uh, High School and at the junior high level um, for about the past 35 years. I've also coached there. Um, Currently though, I am teaching high school health and a seventh grade wellness class.
1: So what made you choose this career?
3: I had great role models in this career uh, growing up. So in the area, I've lived in Cincinnati my whole life. So um, I always wanted to be a coach, uh, a PE and health teacher. I just wanted to be that since high school. Um, I I also chose that so I can directly, I'm kind of like boots on the ground. I can directly um, influence and work with Um, all ages of kids. So I've worked with kindergarten through seniors in high school.
1: So let's talk a little bit about uh, mental health in like students and school and everything. So what have you noticed over time in terms of changes to student mental health?
3: Wow. Um, I have noticed just in the 35 years I've taught and now I'm teaching, I have kids of kids in the classroom. And the biggest change I have seen is how Society has changed and it's much more pressure on all of us and kids really aren't equipped or like mature enough. It's not their fault really. That's just not mature enough to handle some of the pressures that that are placed on them just from society. And then you couple that with, you know, the pressure they put on themselves intrinsically to succeed and then maybe parental or teacher pressure and it just kind of, in my mind, for a lot of kids, makes a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, we, I have seen such an increased need. Um, I can speak from my classroom and just being in a high school and a junior high overall, just an increased need for, for kids to have support um, and somewhere to go. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. So going off of that, have you seen an increase in the discussion of mental health at the high school level? I know when I was a freshman in high school, eight, maybe nine years ago, that conversation just didn't exist. So, can you talk a little bit about how the standards have changed?
3: Um I'd say it's really accelerated in the past five or six years, or about the time when you were you were in high school. Um, just what just what they're exposed to, maybe by accident or willfully, you know, just internet. Cell phone usage, everything. Things are not ready. Their brain isn't capable of processing and and exposed to. So that kind of forms their thinking and their and their outlook and how they feel about themselves. Um, I do know in my classroom, um, I I talk about the three kind of angles of of wellness: physical, mental, and social. I kind of keep it simple. And um, when I first started out teaching, it was all. I spent the first quarter just on the. Physical body, the anatomy and physiology, but but now um, I address my class the needs of the personal wellness for each kid, and I have really, really honed in on the mental wellness side of things, um, helping kids to um, identify risk factors for good mental health, and then trying to uh, produce an awareness and, and maintenance of good mental health. And then more importantly, that it's okay if you need to reach out for help. Now, if they're diabetic, they are gonna reach out for help with a physical malady. So when they feel down, they feel depressed, like they're the only one with this issue, or they feel disconnected for some reason, um, that this, is, this can be normal and there are resources for help. So that's kind of been the, the focus I, I've taken as, a, as an educator.
2: So what have you noticed in the, at Marymount, what is the, the how has the culture changed in regards to that kind of education?
3: Um, the culture at Marymount, as you may know, it's, it's a um, high functioning district. So uh, kids for the most part, um, parents and other adults and other kids expect, you know, high academics and kids to be successful in that area and to move on and set themselves up for further education and transitioning into post-secondary life to be successful, as successful as they can be. So um, I think the culture at Marymont has kind of reflected in some areas how society is latching on to mental health, and that is a very important component of everyone's wellness. And I applaud Marymont for going, I think, above and beyond and kind of dropping the stigma associated with with mental wellness and certainly mental illness and how that's just as important as to to reach out for help. We have resources now that are available to the kids that weren't even thought of being available. Um, You know, we've incorporated for the kids um, sources of strength to get the kids leading that contingency and getting all the kids involved. We use the signs of suicide program um, and that's put into play um, during the school year for a day. Um, We have an excellent counseling team K through 12. We've added child focus, which is an outside entity of trained mental health professionals that that are there for support. And when kids are um, uh, referred to outside health Um, and certainly we've had some overall training for staff. How to recognize uh, signs and symptoms of issues, you know, in students, just in everyday classroom. Because, you know, we're we're kind of on the on the leading edge. We're kind of on the front edge. Teachers are right there, forming relationships with kids and as coaches and mentors and you know everything else. So, I, I applaud Mary Marymont, the district, and the administration for um, being um, accepting of this and incorporating and giving us especially me the tools to incorporate things for kids.
1: Um, so let's kind of switch gears a little bit and start talking about the actual like Adapting for Life program. So first can you just kind of explain what that looks like in your classroom?
3: Yes, Adapting for Life. Um, well we started with the Surviving the Teens program with the Speed. Um, years ago who had, as you know, the uh, personal connection to the program and her background and and personal connection to the program. Um, adapting for Life, I think, has kept the um, attractive parts of the Surviving the Teens program, the personal connection to the kids, but has taken it a step further. I really like the revamped videos. They connect. I can tell the kids Uh, connect to those better and respond to those better. Um, They're just very well done. And in their real life situations, Um, the journal is very attractive. And I like the fact that each kid has uh, in his hands, a hands-on kind of tool to carry with and use beyond the classroom and maybe share with a parent or a friend for that matter. And it has, you know nearly the entire program in it we can use it in the classroom as well with the presenter that's in front of the class so those are the the things i have liked about the changes um and the fact that you know you have a a counselor from children's that is in giving the presentation that knows how to deal with kids who who throw up some red flags or want to talk Um, to that counselor. You know, maybe sometimes they don't want to open up to the classroom teacher for whatever reason, and it gives them kind of a safe outside person, so to speak, to maybe talk to. Um, So that's what I like about the Adapting for Life program.
2: So um, what is your ideal version of what a mental health support system looks like in a school?
3: I thought about the answer to this question long and hard, and if I were choosing and I could throw out the components in an ideal mental health support system for any school at any level, it would be first to approach all kids, whether they are showing any signs or whether they're hiding signs, just the general population like we do with a classroom, because all kids have to take um, health class. And um, this is part of their curriculum. Um, So I think using this program, Adapting for Life, is crucial in first just producing an awareness for the topic first of all and kind of like we said dropping the stigma of suicide and depression and mental illness and then we can go from there and kind of funnel it down and focus in maybe on kids that start to they get more comfortable with the topic and maybe kids that that come out and want to talk to the teacher Or maybe it gets them to go talk to their counselor. So that's the first component, just hitting the 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 general population. Now, being a health educator, I like to see more health education. (laughs) Um, Now we're kind of sliding away from PE and health education right now is just one semester in the high school level. And then I try to put in some wellness topics with all the seventh graders. Um, So this is certainly an important one I try to hit, Um, but also support for kids when they have that sudden breakdown or that panic attack, or something didn't go right that morning at home and they have to carry it on to school. So people in the school that they know that they can go to and they have different choices, you know, just just not a certain counselor that they know they can go to any of the counselors or the school nurse, just being aware of, of the resources or the child focus counselor or the principal, another administrator, or just another program would include those things and then support for these kids that are in trouble and support for their families because their families are struggling with it, as we all know, and probably before we saw them struggling with it. So some referral that we have in place, obviously with Child Focus, but some ongoing referral that's easier for kids to access and and, and more kids could access, and and it's an ongoing thing. It's just not, you know, a speaker coming in for a week and then we kind of drop it and move on. So some kind of carryover going forward too.
2: Mm-hmm. What do you think about starting early, starting like in kindergarten and starting the language early?
3: I think any health topic, and this one's an important one. Starting early is key, and certainly there's a scope and sequence, and there's a professional way of doing it, just like you know with any other health topic that you talk about. And I think, I think it all can go back to um, healthy relationships, and you know even younger kids spotting or or naming ways they can um, let their feelings out in a healthy way. And then also having them identify safe people that they can um, kind of let their hair down, so to speak, with other than parents or, you know, just identifying those people. Um, so, yeah, I definitely would be all for it. It's just finding the time to do that is, a, is, a, is an obstacle.
1: How would you say like one in five has played a role in starting the conversation in schools?
3: Well, one, one quick one that I can think of is the fact that in the Adapting for Life um, program, the videos have, some of the videos have some one in five videos in there, and I, I see the logo in there, and the kids ask, and then we talk about, so I do mention the logo. Um, I think you all do a good job of social using social media, so just myself. I'm on Instagram and uh, Facebook. So Instagram is a, is a good tool and I, I love the, the videos and the interviews and, and the references um, to one in five. And I encourage the kids to hashtag it and, and um, connect to one in five. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I'm mistaken, I think sources of strength may couple with one in five. Uh, that way, I know we've had speakers come in, mm-hmm. if they're kind of personal testimony um, mm-hmm. from one in five. So I like the fact that you're coupling with schools, and I think that just gets the name out there, and they know. Then they would know that that's a source for them to go to, or or a source of help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
2: talk a little bit about the Warrior Run and the impact that that had on the community.
3: Um, certainly, the mayor and my community. Community is very familiar with the Warrior Run, um, as as evidenced by the number of people that participate and kind of it's become their own kind of thing. Um, and I know personally, you know, coaching cross country, we had the kids run in it and participate and volunteer to work. So I think in that um, manner, it gets the word out to not just the running community, but to anyone that wants to just walk or run, and it produces that awareness um and having the booth set up and i think it's a an awesome fundraiser and it brings community together and it brings our community at marymont together with other communities you know right around us i like the competition um, to raise funds for the kids and for teams of runners and walkers Um, so i think it's a great way to produce awareness and get people involved. And, you know, bottom line, if something's not fun, people won't engage. So it's a fun way.
1: You touched on this a little bit at the beginning when you were explaining the Adapting for Life uh, program and what it looks like. How do you think that the kids being able to see other students and other people tell their stories through videos or through the, like, personal testimonies, um, how do you think that, like, impacts the students and, and lets them kind of, like, know that this is okay to talk about
3: videos as a platform overall with teenagers can go one of two ways it can go really really well or it could go south real quick and if you know I use the word cheesy if they're cheesy and they see that they're cheesy and they're kind of fake they will turn off and they'll just hone in on the cheesiness of it but if they see that it's genuine and it's real and these are real people sharing their real feelings they connect with that and you probably know this kids today connect mm-hmm. with video and you have to keep any program or presentation any way you teach you got to keep it moving so between the presenter and then go to a video and then do some interactive poll just keep it moving that engages the kids so i i for one love the improvement in the videos and i like the fact that they are true personal stories and they they do connect with that because they're kids and they're feeling some of the same feelings mm-hmm. so they see that it's normal this person is on camera sharing this mm-hmm. yeah That's awesome. um it even has in one I'll, I'll share this with you in one um example It had, the program, after the program, I think it was last year in the spring, um, we had a student come forward who was in the program, very, very quiet, and she emailed me and said, can I tell my story to the class? So we worked with her personal counselor, and we, um, she put together a little presentation, and it was one of the last kids I thought would get up in front of her peers Mm-hmm. and give personal testimony with what she struggled with. And it went so well, I couldn't believe it. So it, it it's powerful, whether it's in person or video, when you use peer personal testimony that's real, it's very powerful.
2: Well, we don't want to take up a whole lot more of your time. Thank you for being with us today and um, talking about um, adapting for life and the work that you do with um, with mental health education. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I've been blessed
3: with um, to be able to be in a great school with great kids and and great uh, colleagues to work with and that support. So and think of all the great
1: work you all are doing. So we're placed in places in our life for a reason. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about this episode, you can check out our show notes and access additional information on our website at one n five org. We ask that you please subscribe, rate write a review or share this podcast with anyone you think may be interested in hearing more about how we're changing the mental health landscape. Again, I'm Nancy. And I'm Kayla. And we hope you'll join us next time when we look at how to have a conversation with your child around mental health. We'll talk with pediatric psychologist Dr. Anne-Louise Lockhart and hear one mom's story of how she helped her children get treatment for the mental health conditions. See you then. the line.